Station. I can't get no call to action, but I try and I try and I try. Hello and welcome to Call to Action, the go-to podcast for anyone trying to make sense of the world of marketing, business and beyond. In an industry that is a minefield of utter bollocks, we aim to capture our heroes and allies from the front line to have a chinwag with. It's like Pokemon Go, with the single but vital exception that it's not a short-term bandwagon of shite. It's brought to you by Gasp and I'm Giles Edwards. Today I've caught Andrew Tenzer and Ian Murray, a pair of proper researchers Andrew and Ian's treasure trove of award-winning work on the culture of marketing has been lauded by iconic business brains, including Call to Action alumni Orlando Wood and Steve Harrison. The duo behind the Empathy Delusion and the Aspiration Window have not long since launched Burst Your Bubble, described as a radical new consultancy powered by the art and science of perspective-taking. They say... Our studies show that in every framework we use, there are no differences between marketers based in London and those in other parts of the UK. It doesn't matter where you live. Your unconscious thinking styles, moral foundations and values are the same. Not only that, when it comes to estimating the values and aspirations of mainstream audiences, non-London marketers get it just as wrong as marketers based in London. Welcome to the show, Andrew and Ian. Thanks, Giles. Great to be here. Thanks for having us. Right, seven quick-fire questions, starting with Ian. Nice stereotypical start here. Iron brew or Tunnock's tea cakes? Tunnock's tea cakes. Arteta or Wenger? Uh, I have to go with Wenger. (laughs) Art or science? Art. Andrew, the road to somewhere or the righteous mind? The road to somewhere. Interesting. (laughs) (laughs) Ian, Orlando Wood or Steve Harrison? Orlando Wood. Andrew, understanding or insight? Understanding. And lastly, Ian, bad research or no research? No research. Surprisingly easy. We must try harder. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you both for joining us. So to start the show, we always ask every guest about their path to where they are now and find that more often than not, it's rarely linear. So could you start, we'll start with you, Andrew, if we can, by telling our audience what was your first ever job and then what was your first proper job? So my first ever job was a friend of my parents had a a menswear shop in Kilburn in North London on Kilburn High Road. So I think I was about 13. I worked in the shop serving customers. And I think probably the highlight of that was I remember working there near Christmas and a mother came in frantically needing to buy clothes for her for her son for Christmas and for whatever reason, I helped her a lot. She gave me a, a tip of £20, which at the age of sort of 12 years old in the early 90s was quite a lot of money. So that was yeah. good. In terms of my first proper job, it was working for the passport service. And I worked in the HR department recruiting consultants for the ID cards project. Do you remember that when Tony Blair wanted to bring in ID cards in the early noughties? Yeah, okay. Yeah, spent spent a fortune on consultants and never actually uh, 
saw the light of day, the ID card. So that, that was my first job. How long did you work in the menswear shop? The reason I'm asking is because I find lots of people seem to have been kind of like frontline customer service type roles and in maybe retrospectively take quite a lot from that. Whereas at the time, apart yeah. from, you know, that £20 tip, probably don't realise what they're learning at the time. Yeah, um, I think it was quite sporadic. I would sort of help out when I was needed. So it was sort of over a certain period of time, but I might work a Saturday or one week I might work a Sunday uh, in between school. But I mean, it's so, it's so long ago. I can't remember actually how long it was. But yeah, I, de- I definitely think you can, you can, you learn something from any job you do. It was a really good experience, actually. I look look back at it quite fondly because I was I was quite young. So, and did you know what you wanted to do when you were younger? And if so, was it what you are doing now? Because I've heard rumours about um about being a musician. Yeah, those rumours are true. Yeah, I wanted to be a musician. So when I uh, left university, I spent quite a long time in bands trying to to make it, and eventually I had to give up get a career because um it didn't quite pan out as i'd hoped but yeah i, wa- I wanted to be a musician i still do actually yeah yeah, it's <laughs> never honest. <laughs> yeah a bit um, old now what, what did you study at university i studied political science right i, I did politics a level and i got re- i got really into politics found it fascinating but i got really into the kind of the radical side of it like anarchism and marxism and things like that but it was uh yeah it was a it, enjoyable degree but it's it's not a vocational degree so at the end of it you're kind of like okay so what do I do now (laughs) because I didn't want to go into politics that was that was for sure and so so how did you go from studying political science to working in the passport service to what you currently do now well I I mean I kind of I've always wanted to work in media um because my my mum had worked in uh in media in the sort of 70s and 80s so I just looked for, for media jobs and I, you know, I applied for a job at Channel 4 working in uh, airtime management, which was, you know, scheduling the ads on, on across Channel 4, the Channel 4 portfolio. You know, that was my first step into media, but I wanted more than that. I, I was really interested in research and my, my older sister was working at uh, YouGov at the time when YouGov were kind of quite a small business um, and they'd only just really got going. You know, she told me about research and insight and I thought, well, that's that's something that sounds really interesting. And then I started my journey where I had to leave Channel 4 in order to go into research. And then I found my way back to Channel 4 a few years later and then it kind of kicked on from there. That makes more sense. I couldn't see the thread. That's why I was pushing you on that, yeah. where that thread was. Yeah, yeah. It's a loose thread. Well, they often are. And I don't think there's anything you know wrong with that. We mentioned Orlando Wood, or at least I did on the quick fires. And I know Orlando's love of history kind of retrospectively now makes sense given what he does. And, and you know, the research that, you know, being such a significant part yeah, absolutely. of the last few books. So it kind of makes sense that people who are interested in studying the past then study and research in the kind of context and space that they're in. So and I think with politics as well, it's, you know, politics, you understand structures and how people behave and philosophy and all of those things. And it, it's kind of very relevant to what we do. Yeah, that's very true. Ian, what about you? What was your first ever job and then your, what you regard to be your first proper job? So first ever, ever job was a, a paper round. I don't know if kids have paper rounds anymore, but um, you had a paper round. And then a bit similar to Andrew, First job where, you know, literally you showed up and I had a boss and everything would be in my 
local co-op supermarket when I was probably about 15, part-time job after school, uh, Saturdays and Sundays, all that kind of stuff. So, yeah, um, very important at the time. Um, I My background is I'm the eldest of five kids and uh, brought up by a single mum, so getting a part-time job was a really big rite of passage because it frankly meant I could uh, contribute a little bit at home and also I was able to uh, scrape enough money together to ask out the girl that I fancied at school who <laughs> became um, the first love of my life and got me all the way through university. So quite a big deal in terms of moving me on into the kind of adult phase of my life, I think. And then did you did you go to university? I'm not, you know, I'm not suggesting anyone necessarily should or has to, but did you did you study anything? Yeah, yeah. So I, uh, and it's strange as I think Andrew and I only figured this out relatively recently that um, I uh, did a politics degree at Glasgow uh, University. Um, originally went to do an English literature degree, swapped out of that after the first year, jumped into it being a psychology degree in the second year and landed up doing an honours degree in political philosophy. So straight after that, I went and did a master's degree in social research. That led me to my first proper, proper job, which was actually as an academic researcher back in the politics department at Glasgow University. I was a research assistant to one of the famous sophologists of the time, uh, Professor Bill Miller. I did that for a couple of years on a really big government-funded study in uh, citizenship. So that was my first proper job in academia, basically. And was that something that was you, you sought out? Was that very deliberate? It's something I reflect on quite a lot now. There's been nothing deliberate in uh, my career whatsoever, Giles. Um, I mean, basically, you know, when I was a kid, the main thing was, for me, was just getting to university. And uh, naively, as it might sound now, I went to study things I was interested in. And I had no idea about what I was going to do uh, when I finished. And I frankly had no one that was guiding me in that either or even hassling me about you know what you're going to do with a political philosophy degree or you started off doing English literature and now you're doing this I just simply was directed by the things that interested me and then uh, landed out of the, the first degree and uh, at the time probably there's been a couple of ones since but one of the worst eras possible for graduates and the main reason I did the master's degree to be totally frank was there were no jobs, so I had to just, uh, you know, find something to do until hopefully the job market picked up. And then as it turned out, I, I, I did a master's degree that gave me relevant, you know, research skills that were useful in an academic context and, you know, went from there. So no, no plan whatsoever, just stuff I was interested in, basically, and it, hoping it would work out somehow. <laughs> Ironically, he and I very rarely talk politics to each other do we Ian? <laughs> no it's we not, don't not something we we talk about all that much even though we've yeah. both got degrees in it so when did your paths first cross then because you've been working together for a while prior to starting your new consultancy i guess it's one of those quite random things really i'd just gone to be head of insight at what was trinity mirror which is is now reach or has been reached for a good few years now and back in 2017, when I joined, uh, you know, it was kind of post Brexit referendum and, you know, the industry was starting to wake up a little bit more about being out of touch and 
because Reach had quite a strong positioning in terms of it well, its regional portfolio. And for years, they've been banging on about, you know, you don't really understand your audience and we're, you know, we're experts in the understanding of people, you know, across the country. It didn't really gain all that much traction until Brexit happened. So um, I came in and I was given the opportunity to do some provocative, I guess, thought leadership. And I published a study in 2017 called When Trust Falls Down, which touched upon some of the issues of the industry being out of touch without going kind of full throttle into it. And then, you know, out of the blue, I got, uh, I think you messaged me on LinkedIn in, didn't you? Yeah, I did. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Just saying like, you know, let's, let's catch up. And Ian came to meet me in, in the office in Canary Wharf, which is where Reach is based. And yeah, it was kind of like an instant, you know, we start chatting and it, you know, straight away I thought to myself, you know, I really want to work with Ian. Um, we see things the same, you know, the same way. And there's lots I can lots I can learn from Ian in terms of how he approaches research, particularly from the academic side of things. The thing I remember was is that it was one of those great meetings where there wasn't any kind of pitch or any kind of structure to it at all. I think we just rocked up at the office and talked for a while. And at the end of it, I remember coming out with, with no formal plan, but I just was pretty sure we were going to do some work together. You know, it's like um, just one of those, uh, I suppose, the, the cliched meeting of minds, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah, it was, it was a good chat. And then you subsequently have obviously worked together. And, I, you know, I mentioned a couple of pieces of your work in the intro. Do you remember what the first piece was you kind of tackled in tandem? Why we shouldn't trust our gut in- instinct, wasn't it? Gut instinct, Andrew? Yeah, that was it, yeah. I think we... Um... It often gets forgotten about when we're talking about the kind of studies that we we published, but that was kind of the first of the trilogy. And that's where in, I think you were, we were talking about cross-cultural psychology and some of the experiments from that world. Ian was showing me all these crazy experiments that we could do. And I was just like, I love this. I love this. We should do this. We should do this. And then I think the opportunity came up to do that, obviously on a nationally representative sample, but also on a sample of marketing and advertising people and that's really just set the the foundations for everything that's come since and you know some of the experiments we tried just really quite interesting and exciting and different yeah i mean the thing is is that as well as giles the what ended up in the white paper was only a fraction of what we tried you know so it's a very good example of and that's why it's such a great relationship is that to to be Candid with you, I'd had some of the ideas, you know, for some of the experiments, you know, before, and I'd, I'd kind of suggested them to other clients, and no one, frankly, had the balls to, to do it, you know, and uh, that was the thing that why I was so excited when I met Andrew, I threw all of this at him, and he didn't, there was no sharp intake of breath, and like, oh, you know, interesting, but, you know, we're never going to do that, you know, right away, it was like, well, let's let's try some of this stuff. Yeah, I still think, as Andrew says, it's the one that probably, I don't know if it's forgotten, but it certainly doesn't, didn't get the same kind of exposure as the empathy delusion, which came next. But I still think when I look back at some of the results we got and got instinct, I think some of that stuff's about probably the best stuff I've done in my career, you know, because to 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 take the kind of punt that you would be able to apply these things from global cross-cultural psychology and find a difference in a group of people who, on the face of it, the only thing they had in common was that they went into an agency or a brand and did marketing work. 
you know, was was quite a thing. And to get those differences, you know, was really like, uh, I mean, it's still, when I go back and look at it sometimes now, it's still some of the favourite stuff that we've done. You know, these ideas that you show that the implicit kind of biases and the cultural assumptions that basically people in the industry aren't even aware that they have. You know, it was, uh, it's, it's my favourite still out of the three. Can you give a couple of um, examples of the of those key findings? Yeah, the core of it is that this argument from cross cultural psychology that there's basically two thinking styles, all based on a guy. Uh, if anybody's want to go and look at the source material for it, because we never claim that we invented any of these experiments. What we do is we read widely and we apply things, you know, and, and, and very transparently reference our sources. So the the book was the inspiration, if you like, was. Uh, by a, a guy called Nisbet, and it's called The Geography of Thought. And it's basically just a collection of lots of different experiments from psychology, cross-cultural psychology. And the main things it was finding was is the difference in the thinking styles there is between people who live in the East, you know, very broadly speaking, you know, Asia, etc., and, and, and the West, and that's us in the US and Western Europe. And the idea is, is that the West... Uh, and this won't be that surprising. People as a quite highly individualistic, you know, kind of society, and that's a, reflected in the way that we interpret the world. We see things in quite a kind of analytical way. We're always looking to categorise things and look for differences. And actually, we're driven by prediction as well. And that's at a broad cultural level. That's not in the marketing industry or any other industry. Whereas uh, people living in ACE, very broadly speaking, this broad brushstrokes here, have a more holistic kind of way of interpreting the world, which is much more viewing the world as interdependent, if you like, like a circle, having this more holistic view of relationships and interdependence between people. And frankly, the world is very messy and, and in some sense quite unknowable and unpredictable. So the book has all these really, really clever, I mean, incredibly creative experiments in it to try and prove these differences and illustrate them and we applied some of those to as Andrew says a marketing sample and a, a, a sample of a, a national representative sample of the UK population you ask people for example um, I might even ask you this one Giles you might know the answer if you've read the thing you know so what goes with a monkey a banana or a panda Giles a banana a banana, and why is that? Because the the monkey eats the banana. Absolutely, yeah. 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 Well, what's interesting? Lots of people in the industry would go, well, actually, it's uh, the panda, because um, they're both animals, and that's the category animals. Right. Yeah. Whereas people in the mainstream would go with a relationship thing, and that's the kind of thing that we fired loads of these crazy experiments like that at, at marketers and the general public. And we ended up proving this thing that the marketers ended up having this much more analytical and categorical and predictive, straight-line thinking kind of way in terms of the world versus uh, the mainstream. We also did one of, I think, our favourite things we've ever done was when we adapted an experiment uh, where we were testing how much people take uh, notice of context. And we had to create this kind of reel of where you have like a load of faces. The faces on some of them change and you fire like 17 or 18 different faces of the same people. And then you ask, you know, whether people noticed the faces changing and people in the industry are much less likely to notice the changing facial expressions. 
which is ironic given that we're supposed to be an industry about context and, and things like that. So the whole thing about analytical thinking is is kind of straight line thinking and filtering out context and things like that. And the thing is that was interesting about that study is, is the way that you can interpret that in terms of how the industry behaves and some of the practices that happen as a result of our kind of unconscious thinking styles and the culture of marketing more broadly. But there's loads of good stuff in that if everyone, if anyone wants to read it. But the thing about the faces is interesting because rather than even consciously notice it, what happens is, is that there's five figures and there's one that's in the foreground and then there's four others in the background. And it's it's done as a cartoon so it isn't representing too closely any particular kind of demographic. But they're all like, as a cartoon, made to look, you know, it's a blonde girl that's in the front, then there's people of different ethnicities and male and female in the background. But the point is, all you're asked to do is, you're, in each one, as I said, you fire this image at people and you tell you, you tell the respondent, tell me how, for example, happy or sad the girl in the middle of the picture is, yeah? And what's happening is, you look at her, and you can go, well, she's smiling a lot, so that's maybe really happy or whatever. But what's happening in the background that you don't tell people is that the, 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 the facial expressions of the four people in the background are changing as well. And they might be changing in a way that's uh, consistent with the, the foreground figure or it might be different. And the way you got the difference between the mainstream sample and the marketers was it turns out that unconsciously marketers from this individualistic, analytical kind of way of interpreting the world, were solely focused on the figure in the middle and they didn't build any any information from the background, literally the background, into their assessment of how this person's feeling. Whereas what the mainstream did naturally and unconsciously was they were picking up the background information and that got factored into their assessment of how the foreground figure was. Right. So it's more like a relative measure. Yeah. It's a much better explanation of the one I gave. <laughs> yeah. Think about how much the industry talks about context all the time in the forms of context, but it turned out on a, on a kind of, you know, unconscious bias level, people in the industry were less likely to be attuned to context, basically. And therefore, their assessment of and again, leading on to the empathy delusion, this idea that we can put ourselves in the shoes of someone else, an individual and how they're feeling, well, we are less able to do that because we weren't using the same wide range of information that people in the mainstream were. So there's this fundamental disconnect in the, the, the story we tell ourselves in the industry and how we actually go psychologically about interpreting social phenomena, basically. So... So that's that's where that's where we got started. <laughs> that's um yeah, that's really that's really interesting. My question to you on that then is there's an article, funny enough, in Marketing Week, Andrew, that you wrote about research, and your first point says that almost all industry research comes from businesses pushing an agenda. What agenda was there behind this study that you did? What what was the agenda? Or is it as simple as you were looking to burst bubbles? Well, I mean, you know, I was recruited into to reach to raise the profile of reach in the industry, because we didn't have the same profile as you know, some maybe some more illustrious media owners. And I think the interesting thing is, the reason we went down this route and working with Ian is because we felt like we had quite a, an authentic place or positioning to talk about 
you know, mainstream audiences because of the nature of our brands that were very mainstream. And secondly, from my perspective, if you want to get out there, you need to be provocative. And there's not much more provocative than a media owner turning around to the industry that spends money with them, telling them you're completely out of touch <laughs> and also having the guts to do that as well. Yes. The thing is, is yes, all industry research is, is pushing a particular thing, but as long as the research is sound and it's methodologically sound and it's done the right way, then there's nothing wrong with that because, you know, everybody has biases. Everybody is pushing an agenda, but good research feels true as well. And the reason why we were able to do this is because actually you would go, I'd go in and present the research and they'd all sort of like nod along and say, yeah, you know what, you're right. Um, And it's not that being out of touch was a unique thing because it's been talked about a long time. I think it's the way we did it and Mm. the way we went under the surface, which I think really attracted people and you know engaged people with our research yeah i mean to be fair uh, to you i think maybe i was trying to be slightly provocative there in my in my, in my question fine. you do you do then go on to say in the same article that it doesn't mean that because there's an agenda that the research isn't isn't valid whatsoever yeah it's just again it's i suppose in a way it's just getting that context of the research isn't it and understanding that Funny enough, you've used the word provocative a few times and, and Ian, you've talked about things being interesting a few times and I think I really like the way those two elements interact together in that study that you just spoke about. And in fact, Ian, you said in terms of your choices in education were kind of led by or in part by what you found interesting. And I think you suggested that might have been naive, but actually, I think in your defence, I think that's probably where most people want to be in life, to be researching or not necessarily researching but to be in a place that they find interesting because if that doesn't drive you I'm not sure what does yeah I think when I said naive I meant I was I was putting it in the if you like the historic because at the time when I finished my first degree and there were no jobs and I had a political philosophy degree and haven't had the background that I'd had economically I felt naive at that point. I wish that I'd done. I wish that I'd done accountancy or you know uh, medicine or something, you know. But um, in the long in the long run, as I say, getting the stage now when people ask about when Andrew and I, I remember Andrew and I presenting at an event and a young guy coming up and asking me exactly that, effectively saying, "How did he get to do the work that I was doing?" And I don't have a really satisfactory, neat answer for that, other than. You have to do the stuff you believe in and 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 they're interested in. Because I think the work that Andrew and I have done, if I'd have been doing the kind of trying to guess what the career moves were, we'd never have done the work. Yes. I think as well, just to, just to add to that, I think that that's what made, I guess, the work we did for me very rewarding. Because I think once Ian and I got into kind of researching this, it then became like a real... I guess like labor of love, like I really, I really genuinely believe in what we were doing. You know, we saw all the research and it is just so interesting. And it, it kind of, I think that's what, what drove us on to do other stuff because it then became, you know, quite a passion of mine. I know it's a passion of Ian. So it made doing these things fun and enjoyable. And that's, you know, what we all want, want from a job, right? Is, is to enjoy it. Yes. And there's no point being provocative for, the sake of being provocative if, it, if yeah. it is that and it's also interesting then that seems to be a really good spot to be can we t- can you talk briefly about the london bubble because i think 
as an industry, and I say this as an agency owner or consultancy owner, I think, Andrew, you're one of the people who have said to me in recent times that GASP isn't an agency, we're a consultancy. And that's thrown up all sorts of uh, questions in, in my own head. And I think you're probably more right than you are wrong with that observation. But I'm no alien to the London conversation. And I think from a positioning perspective, we have always quite loudly and proudly positioned ourselves as an outside of London agency. But then I think a lot of your research suggests that actually there isn't really a London divide at all. What is it about the London bubble? Why are we so confused with it? And what is, you know, what is the reality there? Yeah, I mean, I've obviously written about this and Ian's written about it as well. I think we've always in our writing made it clear that it's a marketing bubble not a London bubble because all the data, as you mentioned at the outset of the of the podcast, is that, you know, there are no differences in terms of people's values or how they see the world and, you know, their perceptions or understanding of, of mainstream audiences, whether you're based in London or the rest of the UK. And I think it was one of the frustrating things that I guess E and I had was that when people talked about our studies, they they very much, you know, kind of grounded it in the fact that we were talking about the London bubble but I don't think we ever mentioned the London bubble did we in 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 any of our in any of our work and I think talking about a London bubble is quite convenient for marketeers because you know I've been around the country presenting our research and you know you get a lot of people particularly in the Manchester agency saying oh you know these results don't apply to us and they've got a big you know big proud grin on their face and then again for for people in london as well it's like well it's just you know it's all to do with where we live and we can't do anything about it because we live in this big metropolitan city i lived in london for 21 years uh spent a bit of time in new york as well so london bubble it could be the new york bubble would be the same kind of thing but the idea that we're in the centre of the universe, you know, unique metropolitan environments that, you know, affect us. We need to let ourselves off the hook because it's just, you know, such a special environment. It, to be totally honest, it actually sickens me, you know, <laughs> because if you look at any kind of data at all, like government data, I was saying this to, there was a post a couple of days ago on LinkedIn, Stephen Lacey, who's one of my old friends, who's got his agency, The Outsiders, and does a lot of work talking about, um, you know, as the name suggests, outsider groups. He was writing a thing about, uh, he's, he's doing some training that was all about um, the cost of living crisis and how people that were in poverty, how they were different from the mainstream. And this is the thing we've just talked about, you know, the academic research that we apply to get to the gut instinct work. And this is how hardwired these kind of biases are. The idea is we're looking for differences and also at the same time looking for a kind of excuse for why we don't get it as an industry. And London is home to some of the most deprived local authority areas in Europe. And as the agency world has moved from the west of London to the east of London and began to colonise Hackney, Tower Hamlet, Shoreditch, etc. It is every day doing its business in two of the, you know, the most unequal and deprived local authority areas in Europe. And the idea that then the industry turns around and says, we can't understand real lives or we have to go get out there beyond the M25 and hang out in a pub in Newcastle to understand 
you know, go on the poverty safari, I honestly find, you know, I, I just think it's an indictment of the industry. And um, and so one of the things I've talked about quite a lot is that there's this great film by a guy called Zed Nelson. It was all about how Hoxton Street has changed and coped with gentrification. Yeah, it's a brilliant film. You, you know the film, and you know, yeah. along City Road, all the skyscrapers go up, and increasingly the the vistas completely dwarfed by this other London that's happening, but also how all the, the, the little businesses, you know, the carpet shop and the pie and mash shop and all the things in there forever are, are, are kind of uh, changing. And Zed Nelson, in some ways, lucked out because he happened to be filming this through the course of Brexit. And, of course, that narrative is in there. But the other thing that just struck me was, if you watch it, you realise that these people in our industry that are saying they're in the London bubble are walking past all of this going on every day on their way into the agency. And then they turn around and talk about cultural strategy and cultural insight, and they can't even see what's in front of them when they walk out the door of their agency. So I, th- I think it's, as a you know, you can tell, it, it, it is almost the, in one phrase, that's all you need to know about what's wrong right now and what we're trying to do where, you know, with, with the work that me and Andrew are doing to put this stuff right. Yeah, can't see for looking. Yeah. So, I mean, I feel like I know the answer now, but is that a big part of the choice of the Burst Your Bubble name for your new consultancy? Yeah. yeah. I mean, I think <laughs> we, when we were talking about setting up the business, we obviously had, you know, other names in mind, but we just felt that when we were putting it in our, simplest of terms is that you know the marketing industry and the advertising industry is full of little bubbles whereas there's an obviously an overarching bubble as well and we just felt well you know we're in and i a big believer in doing what it says on the tin and you know burst your bubble we felt was quite a quite a clear statement of intent and positioning uh, in terms of what we what we want to do so yeah i think when we when we kind of finally settled on that i think we were quite comfortable that people will understand what we're saying is the existence of bubbles just reflective of i don't know a sort of delusion or is it is that quite common do you think for people in general to not quite see the context as they should one of the other things we say and we're making sure this is quite prominent in our copy and the story that we tell about the business is that everyone has bubbles so for example, someone said to me probably a couple of days after we launched, you know, quite rightly being quite chanced, you know, Ian, what, what are your bubbles? And I was quite happy to tell them what they all are. The thing that we are saying is, is that all you can be doing is try and be aware of them and, and what, what, what are effectively one of the offers that we, we are making with Berkshire Bubble is uh, bringing in a whole range of frameworks from behavioural science and management science that give people tools to recognise the bubbles and manage them and, you know, take broader perspectives. So we aren't saying that there's some pure kind of form here. We don't believe in anything called objectivity. Uh, human beings, from an evolutionary perspective, are wired up to, frankly, have biases and bubbles, you know. Um, but if you're in an industry which supposedly depends on insight and, and, and cultural insight and understanding, etc. You you've got to be in the business of being able to manage those bubbles and biases and you know not just be kind of you know driven by them. So so that's the difference here. We're all human beings and people who work in marketing are 
as human as anybody else, but a core part of the job has to be having the discipline to burst our bubbles, basically. And that, that's the difference here is that, you know, we're not looking for some pure version. We're just saying identify them, manage them, do the best you can to, to take the other perspectives that are definitely out there, you know. I'm really pleased you, you, you said that because that's really clarified. In fact, what are your bubbles is a brilliant question. I wish, I wish I'd asked that. Yeah. Um, but, it, but I suppose I think, it, in many ways, it's like, you know, it's market orientation, isn't it? It's just understanding and being yeah. aware that you will have biases and you need to research to discover, you know, what truly is, not what you think it is. So one of the things, for example, if we were doing the workshops or the training around this stuff, of perspective taking, is that Andrew and I, because through all the work we've done over seven years, Every framework that we've used, we know where we are on those frameworks as well. So we're very aware of what our biases are, you know. Uh, and we, what we would do if we were in an agency, we'd be very transparent about those. The point is, one of the key points in the, the, the perspective-taking framework, if you like, that we're talking about is this thing called reflexivity, building the capacity to be aware of what, you know, your makeup is psychologically, values, etc. And be aware that there's other perspectives out there and manage it. So, you know, big five personality, I'm off the scale, extrovert and open to new experiences, but I'm also very low on agreeableness and I know it, you know. So, <laughs> yeah, I'll, 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 you know, if that doesn't put you up at the start of the workshop, you know, that we, we'll go around and we'll figure out who everybody else is are, you know. that's the... I, Ian and I have so many arguments. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the key point here is that we make it very clear that it's not about changing your own values and beliefs which some people you know think that's what it's about but it's not it's just being able to understand your biases and see things from multiple perspectives um, you know everyone has their own values and beliefs and we don't want to change those or impact those in any way but we need to open our minds and and see things from different perspectives and this this comes into a little bit of the stuff that andrew and i and obviously have you know, ventured into the, the purpose debate as well. And um, one of the key points here and a little bit of a build on the, the, the published work so far in the white papers is, is that if you have a social purpose, for example, the point isn't to say, oh, hang on, the mainstream feel differently from the elites in the marketing industry. You should be more like the, you know, the mainstream. That's not what we're saying at all. We're flipping it the other way and saying, if as an industry, you believe these things, right, and you want to promote that agenda, yeah? Forget, I'm not debating the, the rights and wrongs of that, right? I'm just saying from a strategic point of view, you have an objective here, a communication objective and a, a, a strategic objective. The best chance you're going to give yourself of achieving that is to find all the different ways that you need to land that out there in the messy world that's out there, rather than, as our research has shown today, is that the industry tends to just simply try and project its values onto the mainstream. So the point about this is, is this is how you achieve your objective. You know, it's not about changing the industry to be more like the mainstream. It's saying engage with the mainstream and exactly how they think to further your objective, basically, whether it's commercial or a social objective. Yeah, that actually leans quite nicely into one of our two listener questions. We interrupt this podcast to announce that we will never interrupt this podcast with ads. 
Ads that awkwardly nudge you to contact the pod's host, Giles Edwards, on 01189 952 007. Only last week, some pod listening companies did just that, calling for guidance on research and lead generation. But we're not asking you to do that. Anyway, back to the show. Marketing is incredibly confused with sales. I think you're the one who's more confused, Gary V. Sunshine. So asking the general public for their opinion, be it on Brexit or boat names, is notoriously fraught with danger. But that's not stopped us asking. So I'm going to start with the slightly heavier one. And this comes from Josh. Josh says, with a nod to Call to Action pod guest Steve Harrison, do you think the left-leaning makeup of Adland influences the industry's infatuation with social purpose? So glad someone's asked that question. <laughs> Go on, Ian. The thing is, it just it, it comes to a very, very key point of clarification. And we made this point explicitly in several places, is that the marketing industry is not left-leaning, right? It might think it's left-leaning, it might have a self-identity and it might, and we said this very explicitly in our research, it self-identifies as left-leaning, but there is nothing in the wider set of values or the thinking styles and all the things we've referenced in this conversation that are compatible with any, and Andrew and I are both, you know, academic training and political science, it would be a recognisable uh, version of what we would regard as a left-wing worldview, yeah? So that's one of, that's along the London bubble is one of the other big myths that there is in the industry. What the industry is, is liberal and progressive, yeah? So it's socially liberal, but the idea that bolting on all the different kind of social projects that there is, whether it's diversity or the environment or any of the others, onto effectively unregulated free market capitalism as a left-wing idea is actually, frankly, nuts, you know? So that's another thing there. That, so, so the industry is definitely has a liberal social agenda, but that is not a left-wing agenda from an economic point of view. And in fact... I'd go far as to say that pursuing it in that way and thinking it's left wing is actually probably counterproductive and that it's actually kind of sustaining the thing that a lot of the young progressive people in the industry think that they're combating because actually it's making you think that you can solve the biggest collective problems we have in society, like, as I say, the environment or you know, inequality through hyper-individualistic consumption. So I can't see why how there's anything left-wing about that at all. And me and Steve Harrison have had this debate and a lot of fun with it over a few years since he's published Cancer Won't Sell, which, he, you know, he, he very generously referenced our you know, work all the way through. And, he, and there's a lot of the stuff, points he's made, he's made very well as the great copywriter he is. But when he talks about the left-wing takeover of marketing, I'm on record as saying I just think he's got that wrong and it's not what our work says at all. Cool. Well, that was a, a very good answer. Andrew, I'm going to ask you the second question, which comes from Anne. Anne asks, it feels like as marketers, we have more data than ever. The industry is awash with research, but how do you sort the half-decent stuff from the total BS? Wow. Well, I mean... 
the first thing you can do is uh, attend our workshop on uh, research for open thinkers, which will give you all these answers. It's a tricky one because there is a lot of stuff out there. Like I said, a lot of stuff with an agenda. And I think the challenge is that, you know, a lot of people in the industry are time poor. They don't have the time to critically assess what's being put in front of them. We also, as mentioned, have our own biases. So we're less likely to, if something matches or speaks to our view of the world, when we're, then we're more likely to believe it um, and rather than, than push back on it. And I think this is a real problem because insight is underpinning you know, strategic decision-making and you have to be confident in the insight and the research that's put in front of you. I think the challenge is there is no easy answer to this which is why we've designed a workshop for it, because I think there is so much being put out there that there needs to be some, I'm not talking about a deep methodological understanding, but there are certain things like, I mean, I wrote in Marketing Week, I had three very basic kind of pointers to, to spot, you know, good and bad research. One is you always have a starting point of who's the research from, understanding their agenda, it's fine they might have an agenda, but then there are, an there are two additional steps uh, in terms of understanding social desirability as a concept. You know, is the research I'm seeing prompting a socially desirable response? And then that leads into a third point around agree-disagree statements, because essentially what most research tries to do when they're trying to position themselves or push a particular agenda is they use agree-disagree statements and agree-disagree statements tends to get you high percentages. It tends to get PR. But actually, a lot of those statements aren't really reflective of, of real life uh, and how people behave, particularly when it comes to consumption and, and buying behaviors. And uh, you, you talked before, the previous question talked about asking people certain things and you know what people say and what people do. Now, obviously, we know there is a difference in what people say and what people do. But you can mitigate for that through good survey design. And I think, sadly, there is a lack of quality in survey design more generally out there. And all it does is leads to skepticism of everything when actually there is some very good research which is designed correctly, which can mitigate some of the differences between attitude and behavior. And then ultimately, it's all about the interpretation. And like we said, is that, you know, we tend to be straight line thinkers and sometimes the interpretation goes a bit awry so like i said there, there's no easy answers there's a there's some frameworks that you can use to assess research that's exactly why we've designed this workshop for kind of end users of research to help give them quite a, a nice framework for assessing research moving forward yeah the final part of our interview then andrew and ian is our four pertinent posers what advice would you give to your younger self Probably that there is no linear path and you have to take the good with the bad. Not everything works out as you hope it will work out, but it all happens for a reason. And wherever you want to get, if you push and try hard enough, even though you might take a few detours on the way, you know, you'll, you'll get there in the end. A lot to be said for being able to change your mind. And I mean that from a kind of, you know, career perspective as well, because I think, you know, sometimes people worry that, you know, they might look flaky or, you know, kind of unreliable or whatever. But I just think if you're 
critically engaging with what you're doing and you want to do your best work and something isn't working, I think you have to have the kind of, you know, be able to say, hang on, this isn't it. And that that, that, that links into Andrew's point about not being linear, you know. So, you know, I started off in academic research. It was very interesting, but I realised that, you know, I, I, I kind of wanted to maybe earn a little bit more money than academics do. And so I, I changed my mind and then I was doing political research and I thought, mm, you know, that's a bit routine. So how about this advertising and brand stuff? You know, and I think you just have to kind of, you know, be able to change your, change your mind, especially these days when everything's so kind of fluid anyway. Yeah, really good answers. And actually, I don't think in 100 and almost 20 episodes, I don't think we've ever had someone say that about changing your mind. And I, and I agree, I think there's a real maturity when people are prepared to openly change their minds. But I think maybe when you're younger, you, you, you fear it's the opposite. I uh, always remember I went to see a client once and we're doing an, a, a, an annual review of the account. And uh, my client said to me about her boss is, look, you know, it's all great, it's all great. The only comment we've got, as he said, you know, we love seeing Ian and the team. The only problem is every time he comes here, he tells us something different. And I came away and thought that was the best thing ever. And the rest of the team, we all went out for a drink after. And they were worried about this comment because saying different or changing your mind from the last presentation you give to the next one sounded like a bad thing. You flaky or unreliable and all I thought I was doing was thought about it a bit more and had thought about it and come up with a better answer so I think it's a real it's a cultural thing again in the industry but I really think if you can change your mind you get to a better place basically yeah exactly that if it's informed um we'll start with you Ian if you could banish one thing from the industry what would it be and why the word insight I use insight as much as anybody else does because I feel it's the it's basically it's the basic currency of you know what I do for a living. But I, I think it's actually a very narrow framing of what the industry should be doing in terms of. Uh, and you touched on this with your quick fires at the beginning, uh, Giles. You I think it was Andrew that got this one. You said to Andrew, "Is it understanding or insight?" And if Andrew would have answered insight. I think that might have been the end of Burst Your Bubble. <laughs> it's like, because, <laughs> you know, because it's, 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 a, it's a core thing about it because the, the, the point is, is that insight is only a small fraction of what we do. Understanding is it. Sometimes what you need, a lot of what we talk about is the industry needs to be more aware of the stuff that already exists, the stuff that lots of other people already know, but for some reason as an industry in our collective memories, we've forgotten or we never get around to finding out in the first place. So I think the obsession with insight uh, leads us down a very narrow path. I also think it makes the work incredibly pressurised and unfulfilling if you think you have to be coming up with these things called insights all the time. Because frankly, you're lucky in your career if you have a handful of decent insights in your career. And the idea you can churn out, you know, half a dozen by lunchtime is just a really debilitating and dispiriting way to work. So I would I would ban the word insight. Yeah, insights for cash. That's what it's sort yeah. of become, isn't yeah. it? Brilliant. Andrew, what are you banishing? Um, I'm just going to have to say the word Gen Z. Specifically Gen Z or any generational cohorts? Well... 
I suppose it's because it's the the thing at the moment. I know we're we're, we're kind of on the precipice of Gen Alpha. Don't even get me started on that. But, <laughs> Can't um, wait. I just, <laughs> I'm just, I'm so fed up with, quite frankly, all the crap that gets published about Gen Z. The the research on Gen Z is just so shockingly bad. Um, and I'm not a you know I'm not a huge fan of you know the concept of you know the obsession with different generations and, and things like that. But I'm just sick to the back teeth of of seeing that term Gen Z and a piece of crap research and being told that you know this generation are unlike any other and yada yada yada. And it's just repeat advertisement. And I just I've just had enough. I've hit boiling point on it. Right. So I would just get rid of that term if I could. Nice. Yeah, I'll back both of those. Are there any books that you guys can recommend to our listeners? Yeah. So I mentioned The Road to Somewhere at the beginning because I do. Ian thought that was quite controversial when I chose that over yeah. uh, The Righteous I, I Mind. Thought, but... I thought you'd have gone for The Righteous Mind. Uh, well, I thought yeah. about it, but then I thought which which book had a more profound impact on on my view of the world. And I actually think it was it was because that's the book I was reading when we first kind of came up with the first project and, yeah. and we referenced it in gut instinct um obviously the righteous mind is a is a great book to be honest i, lo- I you know i love reading marketing books decoded i love decoded as a book i just think it's one of the best books out there it's fascinating i know it's been updated as well um so i'm a big fan of that book and then obviously orlando's books are, are great reading as well i think if you work in advertising you have to read orlando's books like i just think they're they're so unique and clever in the way that it's positioned. And I'm a big fan of Orlando's writing. Ian, any to add to that? Books that aren't about marketing that kind of are really useful to marketing. Uh, John Kay's Obliquity, which is another one that Andrew and I do reference in the white papers. And it fits in with a lot of the stuff we've been talking about today. You know, that idea that your objectives are best achieved indirectly rather than directly. And that's one of the reasons why maybe insight is the way it is because we think oh that's what we need we need this new insight but actually going on a broader journey so john Kay, an incredibly eclectic book that just shows loads of examples real world examples about how when you get too direct about your objectives it goes wrong so for example when boeing decided that what Boeing was about wasn't making the best aeroplanes it could and letting the designers figure out all the latest aerodynamic ways of doing that and decided they were about shareholder value. Um, it turned out they started making much worse aeroplanes, you know, so th- th- those kinds of things. It's a really good one. I think there's a lot in that for, for marketers. Um, oh, I mean, loads of stuff. I, I, it's a bit like when you ask what your favourite song or album is, Giles. I tend to end up <laughs> just talking about the one that I was, I'm reading now or I've just finished listening to, you know, kind of thing. Yeah. But there's two really short little ones that are almost more like pamphlets that, that talk to some of the the stuff I was just talking about in terms of the left-wingness or not of uh, the industry um, by the feminist philosopher Nancy Fraser. So feminism for the 99% is one of them. Another one's called, I'll get it off my shelf so I remember the name. The old is dying and the new cannot be born. So for all the kind of political geeks like me and Andrew, that's a quote from the Marxist philosopher Gramsci. But the point here is, is that both of these talk about what Nancy Fraser calls progressive neoliberalism. 
And that's what I think, if you read these, you'd see a lot of what our industry's purpose narrative is actually about. It's that thing about we have the liberal progressive part, but we've forgotten about, if you like, the social justice and economic distribution part. And so if we really want uh, the argument in this is, and that's why feminism for the 99% is saying, if you really want to change the situation for women, you've got to think about economic inequality in the way that we structure society rather than just the identity element of it. And that's the example for uh, feminism, but that philosophy can extend out to, I think, most of the social issues that our industry is talking about right now. And they're both about 70 pages, so you can read them in you know, an hour and a half or something like that. And um, I think that would give a lot of people that are trying to do really great work in terms of pursuing a social agenda to our point and burst your bubble, might give them a slightly different perspective on how they should go about pursuing those social goals. Amazing. Well, we'll link to all of those in this show's listing. And then finally, we always dedicate every episode to someone and we bestow or hospital pass that honour, depending on your view, to our guest who has to give their reason why. So I don't mind if you have an individual dedication or, or a joint one, but yeah, over to you. It was a bit sloppy. I'll probably dedicate it to my sister just because I kind of followed her career in terms of into research i think if it wasn't for her i would probably have I, it's debatable whether i would have had the career path i i had and she's also a great researcher and she's had a she's had a tough year so i would uh, dedicate it to her wonderful can i ask her name yeah it's joe joe tenza brilliant ian anyone else to add i'm, I'm going to kind of double down on that mine's is my mom it's uh ruby Ruby Murray, actually, which was always great when I used wow. to. Wow, how cool is that? I used to, I used to live off Commercial Road, so going down that <laughs> lane, it was it was great. When you know you told the guys in the restaurants that they were serving Ruby Murray, that always worked quite well. Oh, um, wonderful. But um, yeah, I mean, for the reasons I alluded to at the beginning, you know, she brought five kids up on her own, and there's a lot of talk at the moment about social mobility and all the barriers that there, there is to social mobility. But one of the other ones that's there as well is, is if you're in, you know, tight economic circumstances, there's a there's a realism that means a lot of kids just don't consider university as an option. And in the circumstances I was in, my mum could quite, in lots of ways, justifiably directed me into a more, you know, practical, start earning some money type situation. But as I say, I, university, study whatever you want at university, just do what interests you. And so I got it all. I got it all from my mum, basically. Well, I mean, hats off to you. I mean, I have, a, I have so much respect for single mums in general, but to raise five Hats off to to Ruby Murray. Um, this episode is very proudly dedicated to Joe Tenza and Ruby Murray. Wonderful. So as a final call to action, everyone can head over to this listing. We'll include links to all of the books. So they are The Road to Somewhere, The Righteous Mind, Decoded by Phil Barden, who's been on the pod, Lemon and Lookout by the wonderful Orlando, who was on last month, in fact, Obliquity, feminism for the 99% and the old is dying and the new cannot be born. We will link also to the Burst Your Bubble website, but how else can our listeners get more Andrew and Ian? They can contact us on LinkedIn, on Twitter. Great. Okay, so uh, LinkedIn and Twitter and, of course, the website, which which we will include. Um, listen, both, thank you so much 
for joining us. It's been a real pleasure and a huge privilege to talk. After, thanks very much, James. Uh, thanks for having us. It's been great. And finally, thank you to everyone listening. If you've enjoyed this episode, please do share and review the podcast. Keep your questions and guest requests coming in. To get in touch, it's easy to find GASP online or you can email the mouthful that is call to action at gasp.agency. Try and I try and I try.